Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Stephen Rosenfeld, editor, chief correspondent, and senior writing fellow with Voting Booth, who talks about how the Supreme Court's conservative majority dealt a death blow to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Nick Matern of the group BanKillerDrones.org who reflects on whistleblower Daniel Hale's recent sentence of 45 months in prison for revealing the civilian deaths resulting from U.S. military drone strikes. And Amanda Marcotte, an author and senior politics writer at Salon, who discusses how some Republican politicians and right-wing media commentators who spread COVID disinformation have recently changed their message. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. An international investigation uncovered a broad campaign using spyware against dissidents, journalists, and human rights lawyers. The inquiry found governments used spyware developed by the Israeli software company NSO Group against political opponents. NSO maintains that their spyware was meant only to surveil terrorists and criminals. A global consortium of news outlets, including The Guardian and The Washington Post, worked with a Paris group to Forbidden Stories, which obtained 50,000 phone numbers suspected of being infiltrated with a spyware known as Pegasus. Amnesty International assisted in the investigation by determining if a smartphone was infected with the spyware. According to The Guardian, the spyware targets were from nations ranging from Azerbaijan, India, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, and Mexico. A London-based human rights lawyer's clients, including murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi's fiancé's cell phone, was infected with the Pegasus surveillance software. Lujin Alhat-Lul, the most prominent women's rights activist in Saudi Arabia, was targeted just weeks before her 2018 abduction in the United Arab Emirates and was forcibly returned to Saudi Arabia, where she was imprisoned for three years and allegedly tortured. In another case, two lawyers are bringing a lawsuit against NSO on behalf of Omar Abdulaziz, a Saudi living in exile in Canada who was a close collaborator and friend of Jamal Khashoggi. In early July, South Sudan celebrated its 10th anniversary as an independent nation. But there was little to celebrate, as nearly 400,000 people have died in the country's brutal, five-year-long civil war among the nation's ethnic groups. The road to secession was built on the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement with Sudan, which led to a referendum in secession in 2011. Soon after independence, backed by former President Obama, a power struggle between President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riek Machar plunged the country into civil war in 2013. The current unity government and parallel agreements brokered by the international community, the most recent in October 2020, have failed to bring any real stability despite the promise of a 2022 election. Today, South Sudan is seen as a serious foreign policy disaster for the United States and supportive Western donors who are now calling for South Sudan's political leaders, Kiir and Machar, to step aside to make room for new leadership. 
two-thirds of South Sudan are now in desperate need of humanitarian assistance with outbreaks of cholera, famine, and the ongoing threat of the COVID-19 virus. The climate crisis and record-breaking summer heat are placing the lives of American farm workers at risk, who, by and large, lack health protections. On hot days, many farm workers are reluctant to ask for water, shade, or extra break time since they are paid at a by-the-piece rate. Farm worker advocates say that if these workers slow down, it costs them money. After the heat exposure death in June of a tree farm worker, Oregon quickly imposed an emergency rule. An analysis conducted by University of Washington researchers in 2020 found U.S. farm workers will experience an increase from about 21 days of working in unsafe high temperatures per season to an average of 62 days by the end of the century, nearly three times as many. In 2019, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported 53 workers died from extreme temperatures. Heat stress attacks the kidneys and aggravates pre-existing conditions such as asthma and heart disease. Today, California and Minnesota have heat protections in place to safeguard workers. However, farm worker advocates are now pressuring the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to enact federal health safety standards to provide workers with adequate shade, water, and rest breaks. Efforts are also underway to pressure states to adopt similar standards. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The United States is in the midst of a historic wave of voter suppression laws being proposed and passed by Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country. The Brennan Center for Justice reports that between January 1st and July 14th this year, at least 18 states enacted 30 laws that restrict access to the vote. These laws make mail-in voting and early voting more difficult, impose harsher voter ID requirements, and make faulty voter purges more likely, among other things. More than 400 bills with provisions that restrict voting access, disproportionately impacting communities of color, have been introduced in 49 states in the 2021 legislative sessions. As the GOP justifies the repressive effort by embracing Trump's big lie claiming the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling on July 1st that makes the situation more dire. In the Branovich v. Democratic National Committee case, the court gutted Section 2 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which held that election laws that had a racially discriminatory impact could be blocked. In the High Court's 2013 ruling in the Shelby v. Holder case, the conservative majority of justices invalidated the Voting Rights Act Section 5 which allowed federal authorities to block the establishment of voter suppression laws and rules in jurisdictions with histories of discrimination. Your reporter spoke with Stephen Rosenfeld, editor, chief correspondent, and senior writing fellow for Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. 
Here he talks about his recent article titled, Samuel Alito's Assault on the Voting Rights Act is Plunging the Supreme Court Back to the Segregation Era. A lot of the federal judges that were appointed by President Richard Nixon, now people will forget, he ran on a states' rights Southern strategy. And we're seeing that same states' rights Southern strategy um, resurface exactly in Texas and other states like it. But the, the thing that happened was these conservative judges in the 70s, they, they, they took a look at the civil rights legislation and they, they did a very slick thing from the standpoint of being um, lawyers who did not want to support greater equality under the law. They, they changed what's called the burden of proof. And what I mean by that is when you go into court, you have to prove and present evidence that you know your claim is valid and someone has been injured. So what they did was they changed it from being having the effect of a law, which means you know just this is the reality if it hits the ground, to the intent of the legislators when they passed it, which is much much harder to prove because what as you know a lot of politicians will say one thing with a whole different set of motives and it just goes. So the reason I'm mentioning all this is this most recent decision by the Supreme Court resurrects that rollback in the burden of proof when it comes to this last remaining section of the Voting Rights Act. So what it means is that it basically gives states and their legislators more leeway to say, well, we just want to protect the purity of democracy, and then they have these different laws and policies that actually make it harder to vote in many different contexts. And that's what's pernicious about this, because basically it changes that burden of proof, and it does so in, in such a way, that, and this is remarkable, really, it basically says anything that's new in the way that people vote or votes are counted or people have access and options since 1982 is mostly irrelevant. It goes back to 1982. So all the early voting, souls to the polls, I mean, you just name it, you know, automatic voter registration, election day registration, voting by mail, sending all registered voters out, all of that stuff is now in play. And if states want to target at that, the Supreme Court has signaled, or the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has signaled, that they'll stand by and uphold those state laws. So it's really, really rolling back the clock. Stephen, I did want to ask you about another element of this ruling in the Branovich versus Democratic National Committee case, and that has to do with the big lie. Yeah. Because it appears that the conservative majority of justices are on the side now of justifying laws that make it harder for people to vote on protecting election security, as it were, even yeah. if that election security is based on falsehoods and lies, such as Donald Trump's lie yeah. he's been delivering about how the election was stolen from him in 2020. Alito said, if people have to work a little harder to get a ballot and vote, so they got to work a little harder. You know, it's like going out to the store in the rain. I forget the analogy he used, but he said that it should not necessarily be so easy. And then he said, going back to the state's rights posture, he just said that, you know, states have the authority to make voting difficult, and they can cite this voter fraud phenomena as a justifiable pretext for policing the polls. 
And what's really pernicious about that, you have a false pretext that allows legislatures to overreach and over-police at the same time, they're saying, yeah, we don't really care if it's a little, you make it a little harder for vote because we don't even think everybody deserves to vote. It's really reactionary. It's really a rollback. Stephen, in your recent article, you quote, a law professor is basically declaring that the Voting Rights Act is now essentially dead. Yeah. David Schultz, Hamlin University, specializes in election, presidential elections, too. Yeah, and he cites that proof issue. He says the proof issue was critical. He says the court gives the benefit of the doubt to states that their laws are valid. He says the court dismisses inconveniences. He says they're not proof of creating less opportunity. He dismisses small disparities, which means, for example, well, if you know if Native Americans in Arizona or North Dakota have a hard time getting a ballot because they don't have a mailing address or an ID or they have no public transportation because of other reasons, well, whatever, it's their problem. So it shifts the burden of proof to proving what's in the mind of legislators. And you, know, you can't prove what's the state of someone else's mind for the most part in court, especially if they're elected politicians who are saying something to the contrary in public. It's a near impossible hurdle to actually win these kinds of cases. That was Stephen Rosenfeld, editor, chief correspondent, and senior writing fellow for Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. Find a link to Rosenfeld's article, Samuel Alito's assault on the Voting Rights Act is plunging the Supreme Court back to the segregation era by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Whistleblower Daniel Hale was sentenced on July 27th to 45 months in prison for releasing documents about the U.S. drone war and targeted assassination program to intercept investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill. Hale had pled guilty in March to one count of violating the World War I-era Espionage Act, where he faced a possible sentence of 11 years in prison. The 32-year-old had served four years in the U.S. Air Force and later worked as a contractor, identifying targets for assassination. The targets identified by Hale and others, the documents showed, were often not the victims of the drone strikes. Rather, those killed or injured were frequently innocent civilians, including children. Hale clearly suffered from what is known as moral injury for his role in the drone program. But in seven years of activism after releasing the documents, he always kept the focus on the U.S. drone program's victims and their families. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Nick Mattern co-coordinator of BanKillerDrones.org, which called for no jail time for Hale and a pardon from President Biden for committing the truth about drone warfare. Mattern began by explaining why Daniel Hale isn't a household name like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange. I think part of it is that uh, the information that was released by Julian Assange and also Chelsea Manning was much more widely ranged over uh, U.S. political, military activities and, in some respects, much greater volume. The other part of this is that drone warfare has not been adequately covered by the press in the United States, uh, more so in Germany. The extent of civilian trauma, casualties, dislocation uh, has not been covered by the United States press. Uh, there's been a much more willingness uh, on the part of the press to accept government descriptions of the precision, quote-unquote, of 
drone attacks. The fact that uh, Daniel Hale released very important documents showing how the decision-making uh, path followed from lower up to the president, the chain of command, uh, how kill lists were formed of, of various individuals, the errors that are made uh, using cell phone data for attacks, and the very revealing study that was done by the Pentagon over, I guess, I'm not sure if it was the Pentagon, it could have been the CIA, but anyway, the documentation showed that nine out of 10 people killed by drones during this period, U.S. drones, were nine out of 10, 90% of the people, were not those targeted. These were other people who got in the way. So drone warfare is really the way of warfare going forward. So far, the U.S. has been able, U.S. government has been able to proceed with this under the the color of uh, precision and the, the notion that uh, this is something that actually makes warfare safer for everybody, including those people who are attacked, which is just basically uh, a lie because there has been so much study showing that civilian populations and community uh, where maybe, let's say, one person is killed by a drone, people in those communities are afraid to go out disrupts community life, disrupts trust. So this whole thing has been totally underreported. And so Daniel's revelations, it's sort of a, a, an anomaly in, ter in terms of what the press has been putting out about this. And the Congress from the beginning has basically refused to really challenge the administrations of George Bush, Barack Obama, Trump, and Biden. We know that history of the use of the Espionage Act is to prevent whistleblowers and journalists from revealing these very important secrets about who the United States has chosen to kill and why. You know, I, I think people do feel, and I know Obama felt this way, that, you know, having a kill list and having drones go after individual people supposedly was a lot less bad than ground invasions. <laughs> Uh, and well, it was less bad for the for the American side, I guess. But drone warfare, I did a story about this years ago, is also very likely to produce moral injury. That's the word I'm thinking of for the people who do it, not to mention, you know, the targets. I think that the United States government has a responsibility to bring forth the truth about its wars, about who's being harmed, both in terms of those who are attacked and for military people who experience moral injury. The U.S. government is doing exactly the opposite. They're suppressing information, you know, through the prosecution of Daniel Hale and other people. They're suppressing information about who is being harmed by the U.S. military policy, U.S. diplomatic policy. If we're going to have a democracy, public has to know what's being done in its name. And the pattern of behavior on the part of the government has been more and more to try to prevent people from having this type of information when it is about who's being killed and who's being harmed. So the whistleblowers are under pressure, obviously, to not say anything. And when it comes to those drone operators who are suffering PTSD and, and, and moral injury, it's very, very difficult to get any information from the government about how many people those are, what's actually being done to, to assist them, and what are the consequences to their lives? That was Nick Mattern, co-coordinator of the group Bandkillerdrones.org.
Learn more about the U.S. military's drone program and whistleblower Daniel Hale by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. the second year of the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. is facing yet another surge amid the rise of the more infectious Delta variant. America still leads the world with the highest reported death toll at more than 610,000, followed by Brazil and India. Science is now projecting that with a significant portion of Americans still unvaccinated, as many as 240,000 people could contract the virus daily with 4,000 of those infected dying each day, this October, when the virus is expected to peak. The large number of Americans refusing to get vaccinated is linked to the disinformation spread by Republican politicians, right-wing news outlets, and anti-vaxxers pumping deadly conspiracy theories about vaccines into the social media sphere. Recently, however, several prominent GOP elected officials and conservative commentators including Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and Fox News host Sean Hannity, have belatedly recommended vaccinations, but in a manner that was perceived by many as a mixed message. Your reporter spoke with Amanda Marcotte, a senior politics writer at Salon.com and author, who examines why some GOP politicians and right-wing media outlets, who had spread COVID disinformation for many months, have recently changed their message. Yeah, I think this is kind of one of those two-part situations where in the Trump presidency, it was Trump deemed it politically useful to minimize the COVID pandemic and encourage conspiracy theories and denialism in the base. And he encouraged people that revolted against mask mandates and lockdowns and other efforts to contain the virus. And You know, I think the result was that hundreds of thousands of people died more than would have if we had actually not politicized this particular pandemic, if people had come together and actually stayed socially distant, masked, and and did everything in their power to actually stop the spread of it. And, you know, he lost, obviously, and then Biden came into office kind of right around the same time that the vaccine started to come out. And... All the things that Trump accused the left of doing to him, which is to say he thought the left was kind of making up COVID in order to undermine the economy and undermine his presidency, which was false. The right is really good at projection. And I think that what happened was they started to do what they had accused the left of doing, except instead of falsifying or hoaxifying COVID, they actually just went ahead and made the pandemic worse in order to undermine Joe Biden. So I think, you know, those things kind of fed on each other. If you were a Trump voter who refused to take COVID seriously a year ago, you were very easy to persuade to not take the vaccine, you know, even though kind of the purpose of it has changed a little bit. You know, in the past, it was about trying to keep the economy running despite the pandemic. And now it's about keeping the economy from coming all the way back by drawing the pandemic out. You know, I did want to ask you about 
the recent change in messaging that we've seen come from many Republican politicians as well as these right-wing news anchors, it seems something changed in the air almost overnight, given the fact that they had this history of, you know, months and months of preaching against the vaccine. And then all of a sudden, like a switch was turned on, here they are encouraging their audience to get the vaccine. But you've explored this in some detail, and it's not as clear-cut as I just stated it. Yes. I think what happened, if I had to guess, and this is speculation on my part, is that they started to see um, polling or focus group data that shows that despite their efforts to blame the surge of COVID cases on Biden, the public understands that the surge of COVID cases is the fault of the Republicans for discouraging vaccinations. Um and so there is an attempt to escape blame going on. And so you have Sean Hannity on Fox News go on air and say you should get vaccinated. Um, you have a number of Republican politicians say that. But then the Hannity went on his radio show and on two separate occasions immediately clawed it back and said he wasn't telling anyone to get COVID vaccines. He continues to spread COVID vaccine misinformation on his show. Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram on the Fox News Network also continue to spread vaccine misinformation. So I think what happened, at least in the kind of right-wing pundit world, is that they released one clip of one guy saying one time, well, or a couple of them really, just saying vaccines are good, get one, to sort of get the media off their backs and muddy the waters over who's to blame. But they haven't actually changed the strategy of discouraging the vaccine. It's like most of the information on Fox News is still anti-vaccine, except for a couple of segments that were there to hoodwink and bamboozle the mainstream media. Republican politicians um, that have been coming out and saying get vaccinated, that might be a little bit more of a mix of trying to escape blame and in some cases, I think, like, with Governor Ivey of um, Alabama, she she really does seem sincerely kind of vexed by how bad the COVID rates have gotten in her state. But I think, overall, they're more focused on trying to escape blame than they are actually getting shots in arms. And I'll point out that even the Republican politicians that have come out and said get vaccinated aren't doing a whole lot to actually turn that into a reality you know they're not passing mandates they're not making it more difficult for people to not get vaccinated they're not putting any resources behind getting more people vaccinated i want to see more action less media you know bamboozling talk that was amanda marcotte a senior politics writer at salon.com and author of the book troll nation how the right became trump worshiping monsters Find more analysis and commentary on the politically driven spread of COVID disinformation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFI in Ithaca, New York, WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.